You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. Would you take your Bibles and open them up uh, to Matthew chapter 25? And uh, as we've done in the past weeks, once you're there, if you'll just hold your place, mark it, because we'll come back to it in a little while. You'll be ready uh, to follow along as I read the passage. Today, we're um, going to look at the fifth of the six parables that we've been focusing on in our parable series. So that means that next weekend is our last weekend in this series. Uh, The parable that we're focusing on today is the parable of the ten bridesmaids, or maybe you've heard it referred to as the parable of the ten virgins. Again, it's found in Matthew chapter 25. Um, I'd like to lead us towards this parable by reading something to you that I think you'll find a a little interesting. So here it is. Scientist from Romania's Astronomical Observatory have concluded from astronomical records and details mentioned in the Bible, listen to this, that Jesus died at 3 p.m. on April 3rd, 33 AD, and they believe that if you will move forward from that date, then it can be concluded that the year of Jesus' return, listen to this, is in the year 2020. What year is it? (laughs) It's 2020. (laughs) What month is it? You come on, October. That means the calendar's clicking pretty fast. And if this is true, we don't have very long, do we? So here, listen, here's what we know. The return of Jesus Christ is imminent. It is going to happen. Jesus is going to return for his church. But we also know that this is not the first prediction that has been made concerning the timing of his return. Um, Over the years, over the centuries, there have been many people who have speculated and predicted uh, around the timing of his return. In fact, let me just share a few of those with you. Um, There were uh, some early theologians, actually three men, three theologians, who collectively determined that Jesus, they predicted that Jesus was going to return in the year 500. And uh, it's interesting, they came up with that year based on dimensions from Noah's Ark. Hmm. Um, Pope Sylvester II predicted that Jesus would return on January 1st in the year 1000. Um, Another theologian by the name of Thomas Munzer predicted that Jesus would return somewhere between 1524 and 1526. Uh, Henry Archer, who was a monarchist, predicted that Jesus would return in the year 1700. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, predicted that Jesus would return in the year 1836. Herbert Armstrong, who was the founder of the Worldwide Church of God, uh, he predicted that Jesus would return in 1935. And then he predicted that Jesus would return in 1943. And then he predicted that Jesus would return in 1972. And then he predicted that Jesus would return in 1975. And so I've concluded that his philosophy of life must be, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, and then just eventually give up. Jerry Falwell Sr. predicted that Jesus would return sometime between the years 1999 and 2009. And then there was a couple, or there is a couple, by the name of Chad and Lori Daybell. They're publishers, uh, they're authors, and they focus on end times. And they predicted, listen to this, that Jesus would return on July 22nd, 2020. Now that's past. Um, Interestingly enough, this couple was later charged with the disappearance and the murder of their two children. So that's very unfortunate. Um, 
and their prediction didn't come true. These are just some. These are just some of the predictions that have been made uh, about the return of Jesus with a great number. There's so many that I didn't share with you, but a great number of predictions in between. But again, Jesus makes something very clear about his return. And that's that no one knows when Jesus is coming back. Listen, I hope this isn't news to you, but Jesus is going to come back one day. This life is not what it's all about. Jesus is going to return for the church. But the thing that Jesus makes clear is that no one knows except for the Father. Listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows but the Father. But let me tell you, here are five things that we can know about the return of Jesus. The first is Jesus will return for his church. The Bible makes that very clear. The second thing the Bible makes very clear is that when Jesus returns for his church, we the church will be with him. The third thing, I've already said this, no one knows when that will happen. Here's the fourth thing, and this is very important. We do not know the number of our days here on earth. Let me say that again. We don't know how long we have. Taking all of those things, these first four things into account, number five, it means that as Christ followers, we must live ready. We must live in anticipation, ready and prepared for the return of Jesus. And this is the point. This is the focus of the parable that we're looking at today. Um, As Jesus comes near the end of his three years of public ministry, and just before he's going to the cross, he tells this story in this parable to illustrate the necessity of living ready and prepared. Follow along as I read from Matthew 25. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through 13. It says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here comes the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he said, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, this is how Jesus ends the parable. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. As I've said in all of the weeks that we've been studying the parables, and in fact, I've said this in many, many of my messages over in the two and a half years that I've been serving as campus pastor, context is everything. 
We always need to know what has happened before what we've just read. And so we ask that question about this parable. What has happened prior to this parable? And one of the things that we can know immediately when we read verse 1, that it's linking us back to something that's already occurred in another chapter, another portion of Scripture. Uh, because Jesus says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Well, what time is he referring to? I want you to look back to Matthew chapter 24. Should ha have to turn a couple of pages, maybe. And I want to read to you the first three verses. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking along with when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these, he, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. So Jesus and the disciples have been in front of the temple and they're having a conversation about the coming destruction of the temple. What the disciples didn't realize at that time is that Jesus was talking in metaphor form. While they thought he was talking about the physical building, he was actually talking about his body, the temple of God, and his pending death. As he was talking, this prompted the disciples to ask the question, Jesus, tell us, when will this take place and how will we know when it's going to happen? And that prompted Jesus to begin to teach them privately about his second coming, about his return. As he begins to teach them about it, as we go through chapter 24, what we find is he talks to them and says, there will be many who come and claim falsely to be the Messiah. He talks to them about world events that are going to take place before he comes. He tells them, you're going to suffer great persecution because of your faith. He uses a fig tree to illustrate to them how they can begin to read the signs of the times that will alert them to his coming. He confirms once again that only the Father knows. And then he warns them, you must be prepared for the coming, for my, for my second coming. And then we have the parable. And this parable is literally a continuation pressing in on the fact that we must live ready and prepared. Now, for all of us, I think this is true of all of us, we've grown up in this Western world with Western influence. And so when we read a story like this, it can seem a bit unnatural. It's not how we uh, see weddings happening today. It, 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 it's, it's much different. But the truth of the matter is, is this is exactly what would happen in the past in any Palestinian village, but also it happens today. This is how marriage is carried out. So I think for us to fully understand the weight of the parable, there's some things that we need to understand, some customs that we need to understand about the process uh, of a couple getting married. And basically, there were three phases or three stages involved. To begin with, just like here, there's the engagement stage. And it's different though. Uh, the engagement stage then would involve the father of the bride and the father of the groom coming together without the future bride and groom and drawing up literally a contract stating the conditions of the pending marriage. And this engagement period could last for a number of months. 
And then there was the second phase. And the second phase was the betrothal. And this was the actual official ceremony. And this is when the couple came before their friends and their family. And they made promises and covenants and and, and vows to one another. Uh, And then finally, there was the preparation phase. And so what would happen is after the ceremony, after they made these vows and covenants and promises, the groom would actually leave the bride at her parents' home. He would go and he would begin to prepare a place for them to live. He might add an addition onto his parents' home or he might build them a a, a new home of their own. But he would leave them. In other words, they would be married, but they would not be living together, nor would the marriage be consummated yet. He would go and he would prepare. But finally, once he had prepared that place, then he would come back to the bride's home, to the home of her parents, And he would get his bride. There was no ceremony, but this was actually officially the wedding. And he would get her and they would begin a parade that would go through the streets. And it would happen in the evening. In this particular case, it happened at midnight. And as they would parade through the streets, their friends and their family all throughout the village would begin to join with them. The bridesmaids would be waiting along the parade route, probably early in the parade route. Remember, they don't know when this is going to happen, so they just know they have to be ready. So the bridesmaids would be waiting along the parade route with their lamps. And when the, when the parade, the, the bridal, uh, bride and the groom parade came by, they would light their lamps because they would light the parade route and they would all go to the new home of the bride and groom. The door would be closed and they would start a wedding feast that would last up to seven days. That's quite a reception, isn't it? I mean, seven days they would celebrate. And this is exactly what we see happening in this parable. So let me highlight some of the details that will help us better interpret this parable. We know there were 10 bridesmaids. Five of them were considered wise. Why were they wise? Because they had oil. They, They came prepared. Five of them were considered foolish. Why were they foolish? Because they didn't come prepared. They didn't bring extra oil. Uh, the groom was a long time in coming. Remember, no one, uh, no one really knew when this was going to happen. So they were all waiting. They were anticipating. And this particular groom was a long time in coming. But when he did come, there was an announcement. He came at midnight. In, in, in our culture, what would we say? Here comes the bride. But in that culture, it was, here comes the groom. Everybody join in the parade. And that was the announcement made. Here comes the groom. And so the bridesmaids woke up. They had become drowsy because he was so long in coming. They had fallen asleep. They wake up and immediately the five foolish bridesmaids realize their oil's running out already. Their lamps are already going out. So they go to the other bridesmaids, the ones who came prepared, who brought jars of oil and said, give us some of your oil. And their response was simply no. No, because if we give you some oil, there won't be enough for us and for you. So you need to go You need to go and buy some. And it's interesting because it was midnight. I'm not sure where they were going to go. But they said, you need to go and you need to buy some oil and then come back. And so they take off. They go and they look for a place to to secure some oil. Meanwhile, while they're gone, guess what happens? The bridegroom comes. The five wise bridesmaids light their lamps. They light up the parade route and they follow the bride and groom along with all the other people from the village into the new home. 
The doors are closed and they start this wedding feast. The five foolish bridesmaids, they come. They realize, oh no, he's come. The parade's already gone. So they go and they knock on the door. Let us in, let us in. And the response is, no, we don't know you. You can't come in. In other words, they didn't get a second chance. They did not get another opportunity in no way whatsoever. And then Jesus concludes this parable by connecting back to the disciples' original question. Remember, they said, when will this happen? And this is what he says. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Remember, he said this in chapter 24, but now he's saying it again. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, this parable is about the fact that Jesus is going to return for his church. The bridegroom in this parable represents Jesus. The ten bridesmaids, they represent all of us. This parable is a call to us about living ready and prepared, anticipating the return of Jesus. Now let's think about this. If this parable is about the return of Jesus, then ultimately this parable is a parable about heaven. Uh, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to tell you this. Just a few weeks ago, I had a birthday and I turned 60 years old. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was six years old. So you do the math, but I've been at this a long time. I remember as a younger believer that we talked about heaven a lot more. Anybody else remember that? We heard messages about heaven. We talked about heaven. We sang about heaven. When I was a kid, we'd sing, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. How many have never heard that before in your life? <laughs> Mostly. Or, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Revival would break out when you sang that kind of stuff. I mean, there was just this focus. And we always had to be reminded, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But the point is, there was a greater focus on heaven. There was a greater anticipation about heaven. But it seems not so much today. I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure if it's we've gotten so busy or we live in this bless me Jesus culture where I, I, I'm just satisfied with more and more blessings right here on earth. I don't know why, but I can tell you we don't talk much about heaven. And I think because we don't talk as much about it, we don't anticipate heaven as much. But listen, I'm going to say it again. This earth, this is not all there is. Jesus is coming back for his church and he's prepared a much better place. Listen, in uh, John 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Where's he going to be? Heaven. He's prepared heaven for us. So we must be a people as Christ followers that we would live with a joy and an anticipation of heaven. 
Again, we don't need to be so heavenly minded that we don't do what God has called us to do here on earth. But we can't become so satisfied with life as it is that we think this is heaven. Because it's not. Especially over the past few months, right? Um, So what does it mean to live ready and prepared, uh, anticipating heaven? Well, I think it means, first of all, that we have to understand that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Just read those about the preparation in John chapter 14, that, that heaven, Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to that place that I've prepared. Heaven has been prepared. Heaven has been made possible through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what salvation is about. And we prepare ourselves for heaven by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, knowing Him personally. This parable teaches us that living ready is to understand there are some things you just cannot borrow. The foolish virgins wanted to borrow oil from the wise ones, and they said no. And that's because there's some things that just can't be borrowed. Here's what I mean. You cannot borrow someone else's salvation experience. You can't live off of your husband's salvation. You can't live off of your wife's salvation. You can't live off of your mom's or your dad's salvation experience. You can't live off of your kid's salvation experience. You can't live off of your pastor's salvation experience. Each one of us is responsible before God about the decisions that we will make concerning our life. And listen to this. We only have one life. We only have one one opportunity. After we're dead, there won't be any more opportunities. Um, living ready is to understand that faith in Christ not only saves us from something. Oh, you know what? I, I skipped one. The parable teaches us that we must do first what matters most. Five of the bridesmaids were foolish because they weren't prepared. They should have known to bring more oil. They should have known to be prepared But instead, they were complacent. Obviously, they just said, we'll put it off. We won't run out. We'll get more oil later. And it's very easy for you and I to be lulled into complacency, thinking we can put it off because we have forever. And I'm going to say it again, we don't. And finally, living ready is to understand that faith in Christ not only saves us from something, but it also saves us or something. I don't know if you remember, but several weeks ago, as we looked at the parable of the seed and the sower, uh, we determined that Scripture teaches us that God has, Jesus has commissioned us to bear fruit. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God saved us from our sin. He saved us from eternal death. But he saved us also for good works that he planned before the creation of the world. Those works have nothing to do with our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. But he did create us to be fruit bearers. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom. So as we begin to close today, here's the question that I want to ask you. 
Are you living with any regrets? Are there any regrets in your life? Can you identify as a Christ follower, as a fruit bearer, any missed opportunities where you knew there was something you were supposed to do and you didn't do it? A group of college students uh, set up a large chalkboard in a park in New York City. Um, they, uh, as people came by, they asked them to write on the chalkboard answering one question. What is your biggest regret? And slowly but surely, as people came by, they began to fill that chalkboard with their regrets. As the chalkboard became fuller and fuller, one of the things they noticed is that almost all, if not all, of the regrets contained the word not. Words not spoken, relationships not mended, dreams not pursued, and that list went on, but it all contained not. They gave this same group of people an eraser. And they invited them to go back and erase their regret off the chalkboard. And the message that they were giving them is that today you can have a clean slate. You can move forward from this time living a life without regrets. You can't go back and undo what you haven't done. But you can move forward with the opportunities that are before you. So I want to ask you again today, if you were writing on that chalkboard, what would you write? What's your biggest regret? Would you take just a moment to think about that? What's your missed opportunity? We can't go back and undo any of those things. But here's what we know. As Christ followers, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we know that God's mercies are new to us every day. And that every day we get a fresh start. We get a do-over every day. And so I want you to imagine right now that Jesus is standing in front of you or with you in front of that chalkboard and he's placing an eraser in your hand and I want you to see yourself going up to that chalkboard and just erasing your regret or your regrets and then I want you to hear him saying I love you and you are a new creation you're a new creation because of the work that I've done on the cross. You're forgiven for the past. And you're empowered to move into the future without regrets. Father God, I pray. I pray for every one of us. Father God, we all have missed opportunities. We all have regrets. There have been things that you've called us to do, you've ordained for us to do, and we've said no to it. And some of those are missed opportunities, and some of those things, there's still time. 
But what we know is we only have today. We may not have tomorrow. And so I pray that we would recognize what it means to be a new creation, to know that the slate has been cleaned because of what you've done for us, and that we would walk forward with courage into the future, seizing every opportunity you put before us, that we would be fruit bearers. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Um, I've been doing this every week for several weeks now, and I'm going to continue. Um, perhaps one of your biggest regrets is that you've never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you just feel like you can't hear God speak and you recognize today it's because you don't really know Him. Today, if that's you, you have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with God by simply confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and has reconciled to you, you to God, has taken away your sin that separated you, and that you today can become a new creation. That you long for Him today, that you want to start life all over. And so I would just ask, is there anyone here today, and you'd say, I've never really entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I've never confessed Jesus Christ as my Savior. If so, today is your day. And so if that's you, would you just... Let your hand be lifted up and let your eyes catch my eyes. Is there anyone here in the room? You say, I just don't know Jesus, but today I want to. Is there anybody? Father, once again, I thank you that you continue to bring to us a people who know you and confess you and love you and who are growing in you. I pray that today as we leave this place because we're salt and light citizens of the kingdom of heaven that we would go out of this place and live the gospel and be fruit bearers and people would be drawn to you because of what they see in our lives. I pray that people would begin to ask us questions and we would be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask that there would be great salvation out as we're living life every day, but I also ask that you would just send us people who don't know you so that we could tell the gospel story and see them come into your kingdom and then begin to help them grow into strong followers, mature followers of you. This is our desire, so we just beg and we plead for that today. And Father God, I speak a blessing over everybody in this room as they go today. I pray that not only do you bless their day, but you bless their week in every way, mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and financially, Father God. I pray that you meet everyone at their points of need. And I pray that we would be a people who continually call out to you, trusting you with every part of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said... Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.